Okay, well, we have just a couple of weeks left in James. We're getting near the end of his letter, and I'll be wrapping it up next week. And so if you're write, taking notes, writing down titles, the title of this sermon is The Prophet James. The Prophet James. And we're going to be in 413 to 56. So if you want to turn to James 413, and I'll read it. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the opportunity tonight to gather around your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take my words and plant them deep in our hearts. May we have ears to hear in Jesus' name. Okay, I don't know if you noticed in reading the text that he addresses two kinds of people. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And he says, come now, you rich. And so what we want to get straight off the bat is, who is James really talking to? Who is he talking to? Is he talking to the persecuted churches that he's been addressing all along so far? Or is he speaking to people who are not actually in the room when this letter is being read? I've titled the sermon, The Prophet James, because so far in this letter, James has been wearing his pastor's hat as he's been speaking to the church, as he's been writing to the church. But in this section, he takes off his pastor's hat And he puts on his Old Testament prophet's hat. So Old Testament prophets mostly spoke to Israel about things that were going on in Israel. But sometimes they delivered prophetic words to other nations in Israel's hearing. So Israel would have heard these words that were being prophetically spoken to other nations. So prophets can speak words of judgment to people who aren't there 
to actually hear them. Does that make sense? So here's an example. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, 39 is when Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed. And some things happen after that. And then beginning in verse 46, there are these prophecies to other nations. So in chapter 46, there's a prophecy to Egypt. In chapter 47, there's an oracle to the Philistines. In 48, a word to the Moabites. And in 49, to the Ammonites and the Edomites. And then in 50 and 51, there is a word of judgment on Babylon, the very place where the people were being exiled. And in Jeremiah 51, it says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Now, this is the Babylon. This is the place where the people from Judah were being exiled to. So did the Babylonians ever hear this pronouncement against them? Do you think they ever heard it? No, the Babylonians never heard it. It was given for Israel's comfort that one day God would remember them and would bring them out of exile and bring judgment upon the people who had taken them. And I won't go into it, but the same thing happens in Isaiah. It happens in Ezekiel. It happens in Amos. It happens in the Old Testament prophets. So here's the point. Prophets can speak God's words to people who aren't there to hear them. He can speak words of judgment to people who aren't there to actually hear them said. And these words would have been heard by Israel and given them comfort that God has not abandoned us and he will judge the the rebellious nations and he will restore us. So that's what I mean by saying that in this section, James puts on his Old Testament prophet's hat. He's speaking to people who aren't in the room when this letter is being read. So again, look at 4.13 and look at 5.1. Both begin with, come now you. And in the first instance, he's addressing merchants, the kind of people who read Fast Company and make five-year plans. And in the second section, he's addressing the rich. Do either of those categories sound like the kind of people that we've been talking about as recipients of James's letter the whole time we've been in it? Those who fled Jerusalem after Stephen was killed and are being dragged off to prison and tortured and killed. Those who have struggled with thinking that God is tempting them to turn from Jesus. Those who have been considering using violence against their oppressors. Those who have been tripping over each other whenever a rich person walks in the door so that they can curry favor. The Christians that James is writing to are not the kind of people who are going to trade shows and making deals. And we don't get a picture from what we've read so far in James that any of these folks were rich. So no, James is channeling Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophets, and he's speaking to people who aren't in the room. Does that make sense? It's going gonna, it's gonna to help us, I think, understand what he's saying in this passage. So, read uh, James 4, 13 to 17 again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town 
and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So it sounds like James is addressing merchants, business people of some kind. And he doesn't say anything about them attacking the church, but they're entirely wrapped up in themselves and their plans and their pursuit of riches while the church suffers. They've clearly lost sight of what the prophet Micah says in chapter 6. Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? They are not walking humbly with their God. James says that they are arrogant. They have put themselves at the center of things. They have made their world what really counts. And James says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What book of the Bible does that remind you of? Hmm? Ecclesiastes. Yeah, Ecclesiastes. You are merest breath. Just a little wisp that is there for a moment and then it's gone. I'm also reminded of the man in the parable who said, you know, I've got so much grain and I don't know what to do with it. And so I'm going to tear down these barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It's no different than saying, we'll go and we'll trade here. We'll travel here and we'll make a profit here. We'll build bigger barns. We'll eat, drink, and be merry. But what did God say to the man in the parable? You fool. This night your soul will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, this is important because I think often when we read this passage, we take it as a warning to us to not over plan and to say, Lord willing, after everything that we talk about in the future. But James is not talking to us directly. He's not talking to the church directly and he's not talking to us directly unless You would like to be like those rich people, unless you'd like to be like those merchants who are just thinking about their own plans and what they're going to do in the future. You see, in these verses in 13 through 16, he turns his prophet's gaze toward those not in the room. But then in verse 17, he brings it back to the church and he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him It is sin. Because some in James's audience might have envied those merchants who had a lot of control over their lives and were making plans and enjoying profits while they fled for their lives and while they were worried about being dragged off and killed. And they might have been thinking, you know, it would just be so much easier and it would be so much safer and more peaceful if I could just fly under the radar and enjoy a profitable career instead of fearing for my life constantly. Maybe I could just believe in Jesus, but say the right things so that I don't get in trouble. And say the right things to those in power so that I'm not on their radar. 
But that's not faithful witness, is it? And that's why James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. James is not speaking just generically here. He's not just saying that if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, it's sin. He's saying the right thing is faithful witness, even unto death. And if you fail to do it for the sake of living just a little bit better here on earth, a little bit easier life, it's sin. And he's saying you are not missing out on anything by being faithful. Amen? Chapter 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So in the previous section, it was directed to those who aspired to be rich. And now James turns his prophetic gaze toward those who are actually rich and who are persecuting the church of Jesus. And James says what he says for the comfort of the persecuted church. Although we want to remember from chapter 2 that sometimes rich people came into these assemblies and they would have heard this. And it's very possible they would have heard it and it would have struck fear in their hearts, hopefully, and they would repent and take that message back. So let's look at some of these things. 5.2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Once again, as James has done throughout the letter, he draws from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So their garments are moth-eaten and their riches have corroded. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But they have laid up treasure in the last days, it says in verse 3. God has prophesied that Jerusalem would be overthrown and the temple would be destroyed. And yet these rich leaders who are persecuting the church, it's like they're buying up all the real estate in Jerusalem, unaware of what's going to happen. It's like they bought up everything on the Monopoly board, unaware that the whole board is going to get thrown into the fire and it's going to just turn to ashes. And after this section... We're not going to go through it tonight, but after this section, James will put his pastor's hat back on and in speaking to the church will say, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So the rich will have their power now. They have their day now, but they will have a day of judgment. And so you be faithful, you be patient and establish your hearts in the Lord. Verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, this could be literally true, 
The rich could be holding back wages from their laborers, and James could be mentioning that. But I also think of how Jesus said things like, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Or remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard where the last ones hired received just as much as the first ones hired. See, I think this is pointing to the mission of the church and how the Jews, the rich Jews, are persecuting and they're thwarting the mission from going out. All Jewish history built up to Jesus. He is the good news. And the early Christians who faithfully proclaimed Jesus as Messiah are the laborers working out in the field. They are the ones working in the harvest. But the Pharisees and the elders, the same crowd that killed Jesus, they're holding back their wages through persecution. They're holding it back. And the cries of the persecuted now have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And Lord of hosts is another clue that James has put on his Old Testament prophets have. Lord of hosts is used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament prophets. It's used 60 times in Isaiah. It's used 81 times in Jeremiah. It's used 12 times in Haggai, which is only two chapters. And it's used 46 times in Zechariah, which is only 14 chapters. And it emphasizes God's power to act on behalf of his beloved people. Judah would go into exile, but the Lord of hosts would bring them out and would, and would judge the surrounding nations as the Lord of hosts. And in all the New Testament, Lord of hosts only appears two times. Paul uses it once in quoting Isaiah. So that doesn't really count because he's quoting Isaiah. And then right here in James, where James refers to God as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has seen and heard the affliction of his people, and he has the power to act. And James wants the church to know that. And the Lord of hosts has also seen what James says in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I think this has to be Jesus, who was condemned and murdered by the ruling party, which had riches and loved them. And Jesus did not resist his sham trial or his execution. But this is also the way of Stephen, whose death ignited the widespread persecution against the church. And it's also the way of all of Jesus' faithful followers. All who choose to be faithful go this way as well. We don't necessarily resist. It's a reminder to the church to not take up arms against their persecutors but rather to choose the way of faithful witness like Stephen did and like Jesus did. And after this section, like I said earlier, James will turn his gaze back to the church and he'll put his pastor's hat back on and he'll exhort the church to be patient. The coming of the Lord is at hand, which points ahead to the vindication when Jerusalem will fall and the temple will be destroyed in that generation. But that's for next week. So, application. How do we apply this? The warnings weren't even written to the church, so how do we apply it? Well, I have two thoughts. The first is that God has words for those who are not in the room. What does that tell us about God? What does it tell us about God that he has words for those who are not in the room? 
Well, first, I think we should be assured that nothing gets by God. Nothing gets by God. There's a lot that gets by us. There's a lot that surprises us in life. Chinese spy balloon? No idea. North Korea has more intercontinental ballistic missiles than we thought? That's a surprise. No idea. But nothing gets by God. And in speaking words of judgment and warning to those not in the room, he is comforting, to the, he is comforting those who are in the room. And just as God spoke words to Egypt and to Tyre and to the Philistines, to Babylon and the rest, God speaks words to Beijing and Pyongyang and Moscow and Washington, anywhere where the church is persecuted, anywhere where the church is harmed. The church is the capital of the world. Jerusalem used to be the capital of the world, but now the church is the capital of the world. It's the city of God within the city of man. And God's words of judgment go out to any nation that persecutes its people. And I think those words that God says can't be summarized any better than the words that we sang tonight in Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we take refuge in the Father and are assured that those who persecute God's people anywhere in the world will not go unpunished. Amen. The second thing is that James's words warn us about our aspirations. They should warn us about our aspirations. So James warns the upwardly mobile and rich. But he also warns those who might be tempted to aspire to that instead of faithful witness to Jesus and be willing to compromise their witness to Jesus in order to live a little bit easier and better. And it's easy to look at how other people live and to say, it must be nice. Especially non-Christians who don't seem to have the same problems that we do. It must be nice to not have the struggles that I have. It must be nice not to wonder if you'll be fired for living out your faith. It must be nice to not have to worry about money. Or if you have money, it must be nice to do whatever you want with your money and not worry about it. But Jesus says to us what he said to Peter at the end of John. What is that to you? You follow me. You aren't missing out on anything. Our highest aspiration is not to live an easy life. It is to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is to be mature in the character of Christ. And the Spirit of God will get us there, promises to get us there, but not if we have one eye on how the other half lives. And so James redirects us to the beginning of his letter Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, 
its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And finally, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.